Amen. All right. Who's ready for the brand new series, Race, Sex, and Politics in the Church? Are you sure? Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, wasn't that worship service good? No. Uh, um, it's, it's fascinating because talking about these, these topics, these are sensitive topics. Uh, these are tender topics. I was reading this week about uh, in, in Cambodia. In Cambodia, there are about four to six million landmines that are still buried under the ground uh, because of old skirmishes, old battles, old wars in that country. And so, uh, obviously, there's a, it's a major problem because when kids run out to the soccer field to play or when workers go out to the field to work, these landmines, they're buried just beneath the surface, and you can't, you can't see them. And uh, if you can't see them, you don't know they're there, but you can still step on them, and they detonate. And so um, they, can, they can maim people, they can kill people, and so it's a very serious problem. Uh, when we talk about race, sex, or politics in the church, uh, we're walking into uh, a bit of a minefield. Uh, we all have these real volatile emotions around these topics because they're personal, right? Um, and there are cultural landmines. There are political landmines. There are emotional landmines that can, that can go off when you're having a conversation about something as deep and as personal as this. But what I love about what these agencies in Cambodia are doing is they're making a calculation, and their calculation is that the benefit of clearing the man minefield is worth the risk of blowing up. In other words, what they're saying is there's a risk when you go into a minefield and start to touch things and try to find things that are, that are sensitive and that could be explosive. But the, but, the, but the risk is worth it because if we are successful right? If they are successful, then they remove the landmines and future generations can walk down the path freely and there can be health, there can be peace, there can be vitality in that region. It's the same with us and the gospel. I believe that the gospel has the power to clear the minefields of our heart and our soul, to clear the minefield of our culture and of our views and our ideas. I believe the gospel has the power to bring true peace True vitality, true health, true unity in the body of Christ. I genuinely believe that. If I didn't believe that, I would not subject myself to teaching on such, you know, I would be like, let's just do the Psalms again. You guys want to do the Psalms again, right? But I believe the gospel can help us move through these emotional, cultural, you know, intellectual landmines, clear them out so that we can actually have peace and unity, love, and, and, and be real family with one another. So we're going to go in and we're going to do it. And today I'm going to preach on the subject, uh, family for real, family for real. And we're going to talk a little bit about God's vision, God's vision for ethnic unity, for racial unity in the church. It's called family for real. Let's take a moment. Let's just pray. Let's open our hearts, still our hearts and prepare for God's word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are so grateful for you. We're so grateful, God, for the truth of who you are, the power of who you are, the strength of who you are. God, I pray that your spirit would move in this place. Fill us, Lord God, with your grace. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with your spirit. Fill my mouth with words that would um, bring life, that would bring unity, that would bring wholeness and healing, God, in a troubled land. And Lord, open all of our ears to receive what you would have for us today. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I don't know if, if you've been watching the, the Winter Olympics, but I have been trying to catch little bits of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And one of the things that I, that I like to see, and a lot of athletes do this, and maybe you've noticed this, is right before they compete, they close their eyes and they sort of visualize what they're about to do. So if you notice the, the, uh, the downhill skiers, a lot of times they'll close their eyes and you can just see them kind of moving their bodies. They're, they're visualizing what they are about to do. If, if you're going to be a major athlete, you have to have a vision of what you're trying to accomplish, right? So a lot of these athletes will have a vision and their vision probably ends with them standing on a podium with a gold medal hanging around their neck. So they've got a vision of where they want to go. But in order to get to the vision, they need to execute a mission. They have to have a mission. 
The mission is the objective, the, 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 the specific objective. It's the description of what it is that they're going to do in order to accomplish the vision, right? So if the vision is the, is the why, the mission is the how, right? I've got a vision of where I'm going now. I've got a mission how I'm going to get there. But then there's one more step for these athletes. Not only do they have to have a vision and a mission, they need a strategy, They need a strategy that's going to help them get from A to B. What is the means by which I'm going to accomplish the goal, right? This is the true truth for all of us in every area of our life. If ever we want to accomplish something, we've got to have a vision of where we're going. A vision is a picture of the world as it should be, not the world as it is. So it's a, it's a picture of the, what we're trying to accomplish. Then we've got to have a mission. We've got to have a clear sense of how we're going to do it. And then we need a strategy, which is the specific the specific uh, uh, tactics that we're going to use to get to the end goal. So what I want to do to you for, for us today is I want to give you Jesus's vision for ethnic unity, racial and ethnic unity. I'm going to give you his vision according to him, according to what he says. What's his vision of the way he wants us to ultimately be like? Not the way we are, but how he wants us to be. Then I'm going to give you his mission for us, right? Because he gives us the mission, says, I want you to go pursue this mission. And this mission is designed to go uh, uh, effectuate and accomplish the vision. But then he does one more thing and he says, I'm going to give you a strategy. I'm going to give you a strategy. And this is the implementation. This is the game plan. How do you actually fulfill this game plan that I have for you? So let me start with the vision, the vision of Christ for racial and ethnic unity in the body of Christ is found in many places. But one place in particular is John 17. John 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He's about to be killed. This night, he's going to be arrested. This is kind of a deathbed prayer. You know, it's, it's, it's serious when, you, when you're making the prayer and you know you're about to die. Jesus knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to be captured. And he prays a prayer in front of his disciples. And this is what he says. He prays this. He says, I pray... For those who will believe in me, he's praying for you. Any of you who are followers of Jesus, who put your faith in Jesus. And by the way, I don't assume that everybody here is a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a believer, we are so glad you're here. And today you get to get a peek of what Jesus is calling us into. And maybe you'll be prompted to come and and join us. Uh, He prays this. I pray for those who believe in me that all of them may be one. Somebody say one. Say it with a little more enthusiasm. I pray that they would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I have given them, you, me, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one. You see what Jesus is driving at? I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know, he says, that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. This is a picture of the world that Jesus has. He's praying for a future event when all of us will be one. So Christ's vision, if I'm going to sum it up, is this, that we would be one in him. That's his vision of of the world for his believers. When he pictures us in the future from the time of of the, uh, the night before his death, his vision is that every person from every tribe, every tongue, every nationality, every race, every ethnicity, every culture would come together under God in Christ and be one. Complete unity, not just rubbing elbows, but knitting hearts. That we, we would be family for real. That we would be one. That's what he's talking about. That we would actually, truly, deeply be one. That's his vision. How are we going to accomplish this, Jesus? Right? What's the mission that you're sending us on? Well, he tells us. Back up a few verses, and he says this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, somebody help me, love one another. So what he's saying is, I've got a vision that you are all one. That's the why. Here's the how. Love one another sacrificial love for one another is how you accomplish complete unity, oneness in Christ. He says it again in Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God. You all know this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Our church has a mission statement. Our mission is to bring people and God together in love. That's our mission. Where do we get that mission? We get it right here. We get it from Jesus who says, here's the mission. I want you to be one with God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to be one with each other. Complete unity in the body of Christ. Love one another as yourself. This is the mission. This is how, this is how we do it. Now, the question then becomes, did you put that mission statement up? You guys got that up there? The mission statement, bringing people and God together in love. Good. Just want to make sure you note takers got that. Okay. We got the vision. We're all one in him. We got the mission. Bring people and God together in love. Now what he does is says, I'm going to push it a little further. I'm going to give you the strategy. I'm going to give you the actual means by which you accomplish the mission and fulfill the vision. And he gives us the strategy in a story that everybody here has heard, whether you've been in church your whole life or you've never even walked in the church doors. You know this story, but I'm going to read it out to you so we can pull his strategy out of here. Here's the, the, the strategy, according to Jesus. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to, to test Jesus and said, teacher, what must I do to inherit life and, and inherit eternal life? This is a lawyer who wanted to test and probe Jesus's intelligence to see how good he was. Nothing against the lawyers out there. Amen. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus says, you're a lawyer, right? You know the law. What's written in the law? How do you read it? What's your interpretation? The lawyer answered, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says. You are correct, Jesus says. You have correctly articulated the mission of God. That we would love one another. That we would love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we would love, you have accurately captured the mission. That's what you're supposed to do. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? You see what he wanted to do? He wanted to narrow the definition of neighbor so that he could fit into the definition of neighbor. And so that the person that he liked would fit into the definition of neighbor. And that the person that he agreed with would fit into the definition of neighbor. He's challenging Jesus. The scripture says he wanted to justify himself. In other words, what that means is there are people that I love and there are people that I don't love. And you're telling me to love my neighbor. So I just want to narrow the definition of neighbor to make sure that it doesn't include people that I don't like. That was the whole thinking process there. I've got some biases. I've got some prejudices. I've got some judgmentalism. I've got some stuff in my mind about other people. I just want to make sure that you're not saying that I've got to love them as I love myself. That's what the lawyer is saying. I've got some stuff in my heart. I've got some landmines that have built up in my life and in my heart and in my mind because of skirmishes and battles of my past, and they're buried just below the surface, and I'm not sure I want you to touch those. I kind of like them where they are. I don't know that I want to have a relationship with the people that I don't like. Are you with me this morning? Woo. So he says, uh, let, me, let, me, let me just narrow that definition. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answers that question with the most famous parable in the Bible. Here it is. Jesus answered, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. It's a man that's been beaten, brutally robbed, beaten, stripped, left at the side of the road, bleeding, half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw the man beaten on the side of the road, he passed by on the other side. In other words, the visual, the visual of the man at the side of the road actually, actually repelled him to move to the other side of the road. He saw somebody hurt and he said, let me get out of here. Likewise, a Levite, a Levite is a temple worker, might have even been the priest's assistant, walking, you know, at a later time down the road. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and then passed by on the other side of the road. I want you to get at the picture because the, 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 the priest saw the man lying at the side of the road and actually the sight of seeing him pushed the guy to the other side of the road. The Levite wasn't quite that bad. The Levite said, huh, what's going on? It came over to the man and then said, yeah, got to keep moving, right? So they both kept moving. And then Jesus says, but a certain Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came where he was. Let me pause you on Samaritan. Why does Jesus draw out and point out the ethnic identity of the third person? The reason he points this out is a few reasons. One is because it's a different ethnic identity than the three other characters. It's a different ethnic identity than the guy laying on the side of the road who's presumably a Jew. And of course, the priest and the Levite are both Jewish. So then Jesus says, but I want to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a third character to the story who is of, of a different culture, a different ethnicity, a different quote-unquote race, right, than you. And I want to point this out because I want to show you a strategy for what it really means to love neighbor, for what it really means to accomplish my vision of all of us being one. I'm going to give you a strategy to accomplish ethnic and racial unity in the body of Christ. So he draws this out. Now, you Many of you may know the history of the Samaritans and the Jews, and I don't want to get all into it this morning, but they were anathema to one another. They did not like one another. They had nothing to do with each other. They did not eat at the same lunch counter. They did not drink from the same drinking fountain. They did not go to the same school. They did not go to the same parties. They did not invite one another over for dinner. They did not like one another. There was ethnic tension between these two groups. But Jesus uses a Samaritan for a point. And when the Samaritan saw the man at the side of the road, he had compassion. This is the phrase I want to focus on for a minute. So he went to him. The Samaritan went to him. Strategy number one for effectuating ethnic unity in the body of Christ is we approach the pain that others avoid. We approach the pain that others avoid. The priest, avoidance. I get, the, I get the avoidance. You get the avoidance. When you see harm, pain, hurt, you don't want to go to it. You want to move away from it. We all do. The priest said, I, I just, I'm not doing it. The Levite said, um, man, he's, he's, something's wrong, but I, I, I'm not going to do it, right? But the Samaritan approached the pain that the others avoided. Many of you will remember August 9th, 2014 in St. Louis. If you're from St. Louis, uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And it, like, if you lived here at that time, it nearly tore this city apart. Everybody reacted to that event. Michael Brown was 18-year-old unarmed black man, and he was shot by Darren Wilson, a 28-year-old white police officer, killed. And this city just like immediately, if you, if you remember, just, it just immediately tore, almost tore apart. Very much along ethnic and racial lines. Our church was three years old. We had started in September of 2011, and this was August 2014. So we were three years old, and we were a fledgling little church at that time. But we were a church like we are now. We were, we were a multi-ethnic congregation. We were black and white and Hispanic and Asian and Democrat and Republican and people from all different backgrounds and walks of life. That's what we were. That's what we still are. And while I'm looking around and going, man, this city is being torn apart, I thought, how do we, as this body of Christ, be different from what's happening in the world? How can we be different? And so I called our elders together at that time. And our elders, we had six elders, three black, three white. And we all got in a room. We didn't have an office. We got, it was the weirdest thing. We were in a, a conference room in the grocery store across the street. They had a conference room in the grocery store. And so we're all sitting around there and I go, guys, what are we going to do? Because what probably everyone wanted to do and a lot of people did do was what the priest did. There's pain. It's complicated. There's a lot of hurt there. There's some landmines there. I'm not going there, right? Or what a lot of other people did, right? Like, huh, let me just examine the problem. Yep, that's a problem, right? Move on. I wish, we, I, wish I could tell you that we came out of there with a 10-point plan to bring racial and ethnic healing across the land, right? But we didn't. None of us actually knew what to do. There were seven of us in the room. We didn't know what to do. But what we did do was decide that we're going to move toward the pain, not away from the pain. We decided that we're going to move toward one another, not away from one another. And we made a commitment in August of 2014 that when we see problems like this and issues like this happen, we're going to actually move toward the pain. 
as uncomfortable as it is, we began to care for one another, pray for one another. We wept together. We cried together. We gathered. Some of y'all were here. We gathered together. We put our arms around each other. We, we started making plans and we, we started doing some initiatives and doing some mission stuff. We just, we didn't know exactly what to do, but we knew that what we weren't going to do was walk down the other side of the road. We said, we're going to, we're going to go closer to the pain. This church was so filled with compassion and, and I, and I appreciated it because, you know, in a moment like that, it's not always clear. What's the right strategy? What are the right words, right? The right strategy is we approach the pain that others avoid. If we want to experience in the body of Christ, racial and ethnic unity, that means we've got to walk towards some pain. When Martin Luther King preached on this uh, sermon, on this passage, he said, the first question that the priest and the Levite asked when they saw the man at the side of the road was, if I help him, what will happen to me? That's the question they asked. If I approach the pain, what's going to happen to me? He said, the Samaritan reversed the question. If I don't approach the man, what will happen to him? So if if we want to experience true compassion, if we want to experience true unity, true wholeness, true oneness in the body of Christ, that means we have to be willing to reverse some questions and not just ask, what will happen to me if I get close to that pain? It has to be, what will happen to them if I don't get close to that pain? And so we're going to walk towards the pain. The scripture teaches us over and over to be a follower of Jesus means to allow the compassion. That's what it says. The compassion moved him. That's, that's actually what it means. The compassion drew him in. Colossians 3.12 says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Right? This is what we want. This is what we do. This is our strategy. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to accomplish his vision. First Peter three, eight says, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble, right? Compassion has to be our first impulse because, because caution will, will send us away. Compassion will draw us near. Caution will say, you know what? I'm not going there. Compassion will say, I'm going there. Romans 12, 15, 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. So that's the first strategy. The first strategy is that we approach the pain that others avoid. That's what the Samaritan did. That's what Jesus is saying, I want you to do. I'm giving you the strategy for racial and ethnic healing. I've got a Samaritan and a Jew, and I'm showing you how to become one, right? So we approach the pain that others avoid. But the Samaritan went further than just approaching the pain. Look at verse 33. It says, so the Samaritan went to him, right? He approached and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. He took care of him. This is a big one. Are you ready? This is strategy number two. If we want to experience racial and ethnic unity in the body of Christ, we take responsibility irrespective of culpability. Let that sink in. There's big words right there. You know what that means? That means we share the burden whether or not we share the blame. Come on, somebody. The, the, the Samaritan did not say, I didn't do it. Therefore, I'm not going to help the guy. The Samaritan didn't ever ask, wait a minute, whose fault was this? Because I'm going to go get him to do it, Right? The Samaritan took responsibility, even though he had nothing to do with the underlying issue that had happened. He said, I'm going to take responsibility irrespective of culpability. In other words, I'm not culpable. I'm not guilty. I didn't do it, but I'm still going to take responsibility, right? The Levite and the, and the priest, somewhere in their calculation, they said, this isn't my problem. It's not my fault. It's not my, my people. It's not my problem. I'm moving on. Samaritan said, there's a problem, and I'm going to go to that problem, and I'm going to take responsibility for it. I'm going to put him on my own animal. I'm going to take him to the hotel at my expense. I'm going to pour my own oil and wine. I'm going to take care of this man. As I was studying for this, um, this sermon, I was just researching all of these different things, and I began to read about the Underground Railroad and, and the risks that men and women took 
uh, in the late 1700s all the way through the mid-late 1800s uh, to help fugitive slaves flee from the South and, and, and into freedom. What I did not realize, because I've heard about the Underground Railroad all, all my life, I, I've known about it, I didn't realize how motivated by faith these people were. I actually didn't realize who, who all was. It's an amazing, I would just urge you, Google it. <laughs> Google it and begin to do some research. Because what's fascinating is it was actually a multi-ethnic group of devout Jesus followers that formed the network of the Underground Railroad. It was an incredible group of people that, that, that came across ethnic lines, right? Motivated and animated by their faith in Jesus, influenced and empowered, catalyzed by the teachings of Jesus around this issue and said, we're going to make a difference. I'm going to give you just a few real quick. Frederick Douglass was inspired by the quote, pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. After escaping slavery, became a national leader of the abolitionist movement. He was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Levi Coffin, inspired by his faith, he was a devout Quaker. Uh, and the teachings of Jesus worked tires, tirelessly to assist the cause. It's estimated that 3,000 fugitive slaves passed through his care into freedom. Harriet Tubman, of course, we all know, by, uh, born into slavery, escaped subsequently 13 missions back into slave territory to rescue dozens of enslaved people. She, she came to be known as Moses for helping so many people escape for, uh, to freedom. Here's what she said. God, God gave me the strength. He meant I should be free. It wasn't me. She said it was the Lord. William Still, an elder and founding member of the Berean Presbyterian Church, sometimes called the father of the Underground Railroad, helped as many as 60 slaves a month find freedom. Fascinating side story about him. One of the slaves that came through his home turned out to be his biological brother that he had lost, you know, 50 years earlier. Isaac Hopper a devout believer, Hopper uh, operated one of the first cells of the abolitionist underground. In addition to hiding runaways in his own home, Hopper organized a network of safe havens and cultivated a web of informants so as to learn the plans of fugitive slave hunters. He was like a spy. He was like a... Uh, Laura Havilland, a dedicated member of the Wesleyan Church, her home became the first underground railroad station in Michigan. Uh, she also traveled to the South on multiple occasions to, help, to aid escaped slaves. These were people that said, you know what, I'm going to move towards the problem and I'm going to take responsibility irrespective of culpability. These are people that said, I'm going to put myself at risk in order to serve somebody else in need. And it's my problem because Jesus says it's my problem. It's not my problem because I caused the problem. That's not the right question to ask. Whose fault is this? The right question to ask is, am I a follower of Jesus? And if so, then I'm going to take responsibility irrespective of culpability. I'm going to carry the burden irrespective of the blame. I'm going to bring a, a cure irrespective of the cause. Anybody with me this morning? So, so Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to do. This is my strategy. That means if there's a problem in the black community, that's our problem. There's a problem in the white community. That's our problem. There's a problem in the Hispanic community. That's our problem. There's a problem in the Asian community. That's our problem. The native community. That's our problem. Wherever the problem is, that's our problem because we take responsibility irrespective of culpability. That's our problem because we're Jesus people and Jesus people move towards the problem and we take responsibility even if we are not specifically to blame. He takes it one step further. Y'all ready to go one step further? Here he goes. Verse 34. On the next day, which means he stayed with the man overnight in the hotel. He cared for that guy overnight at the end. On the next day, when he left the hotel, he took out two days' wages, whatever he made that week, two days' worth, gives it to the innkeeper and says, take care of this guy. And whatever more you spend, when I come back, I will repay you. Not if, if you spend any more, see if he's got some cash to cover because I'm done right? I already gave him wine and oil. I already gave him a ride. I already covered his hotel, right? And I've pretty much done my thing. No. He said, no, I, I, actually anything else that it costs to take care and bring this guy to, to wholeness, I want, you to, I want you to charge me for that. All right? Here's strategy number three. We pursue wholeness wherever there's been harm. Wholeness wherever there's been harm. What does that mean? This is deep, okay? That means we don't just stop the injustice. We address the consequences that the injustice caused. We address the effects. We, we seek to bring people into complete wholeness. We don't just stop the problem. <laughs> Am I going too far for people right now? 
we don't just stop the problem. We actually address the consequences, the long-term effects that the problem caused. In other words, the Samaritan said, I'm not only going to get you back up on your feet and get you to a hotel, but I want to bring you back to the state you would have been in, but for the injustice that had been caused to you. I want to put you in the position that you would have been in if you hadn't gotten robbed and beaten and stripped and left at the side of the road. I want to bring you into wholeness. I want to make you whole. This is an important, very important point because as Christians, a lot of times we become ahistorical. Ahistorical means we're only looking at the current moment and we're not looking at the history that led to the current moment and we're not looking at the consequences of the past moment. And what the Samaritan says is, actually, I wasn't there when you got beaten and robbed. Wasn't even there, right? If I'd have been there, I would have stopped that. But I wasn't even there. So what I, all I see are the long-term consequences and effects of what happened to you. And what I'm going to do is do everything within my power, everything within my finances. I'm going to do everything I can to square you away and make you whole and bring you into wholeness, right? I'm going to try to address the effects and consequences of what happened in the past. I want you to take a moment. I want to, I want to share with you a, a ministry, one of the ministries that we support at One Family Church. I promise I'm not taking an offering uh, for the ministry after this, but I want you to see what some of the members of One Family Church are doing in an effort to address this particular strategy to make whole uh, those who have been harmed. Let's show the video. up in St. Louis. I'm, I'm a St. Louis guy. My dad grew up here. His dad's from here. I love this city. But even when I was a kid, I felt that there was something wrong with respect to race. Most of the white kids that I grew up around lived in nice neighborhoods, safe neighborhoods. Their parents owned their homes. They were middle class. They were on a path. Most of the black kids that I grew up with lived in more dangerous neighborhoods. Most of them had less wealth, many of them below the poverty line and many of their parents did not own homes. They had apartments. So there was just this disparity. And as a kid, I always thought, why is this city this way? When my family and I settled back in St. Louis, this question came back to haunt me again. Why are we experiencing this kind of disparity in this city? Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about it, and he recommended a book by Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law. And this book outlines in granular detail the policies, the laws, the codes, the legislation that from the 1920s until the late 1960s prohibited African Americans from purchasing homes, having home ownership, which is the main vehicle for wealth among the middle class. I couldn't believe what I was reading, so I did uh, something that seemed natural. I live in a home in St. Louis. So I looked up the indenture on my house and I could not believe what I saw. The indenture literally said, and it was written in 1922, that these homes in this neighborhood may not be sold to Negroes or Malays. I'd never heard of the term Malay, looked it up and it was a racial term that described uh, what people believed to be the brown race in the 1920s. So literally in my neighborhood, the legally binding document that governs my neighborhood that tells you where to build a fence or where to put your downspout also said no black people, no brown people are allowed to live in this neighborhood. Now, it wasn't enforceable as a matter of law after 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, but that indenture was not amended to remove that language until 1993. 1993. I began to find some research specifically on St. Louis by a scholar named Jason Purnell. He and his team drafted a report called For the Sake of All, and, and there was a specific report in there called Dismantling the Divide. Dr. Purnell's work is like, this is in my neighborhood. It articulated specifically what had happened in St. Louis with respect to 
racially discriminatory housing practices and the long-term consequences and impacts of those practices. What I often tell audiences is that St. Louis is an innovator in segregation. Um, we had one of the first municipal ordinances in 1916 that zoned parts of our city by race. Uh, after that gets struck down by the Supreme Court, we come up with restrictive deed covenants where neighbors are banding together, very often sponsored by the church on the corner or the civic organization and writing into their deeds we will never sell this home to an African-American family. And what you have is, 80 years ago, practices like redlining, which comes out of the Homeowners Loan Corporation during the Roosevelt administration, ostensibly to look at cities around the country and determine what's a safe place uh, to back a loan for a mortgage. What got shaded in red across the country was characterized by, and this is the actual language, an infiltration of the Negro race. So that all creates the map of St. Louis that we have today. That research is what catalyzed me to really say, we've got to do something here, and we've got to do something now. Over time, with a group of very, very bright people, we launched the FAM. And the mission of the FAM is to eliminate race as a factor in home ownership in St. Louis within one generation. Owning a home is the American dream for you know millions of families. But there's a certain segment of the population that for years was left out of this opportunity. They were prohibited from buying or they were steered to areas that were, they wouldn't be able to build wealth and income. So for me, uh, this is an opportunity to right some of the wrongs of the past. This is an opportunity to help people get homes in areas that are going to grow in value so that they can pass that wealth on from generation to generation. So the impact of this historic discrimination is that there is a dramatic lack of generational wealth in African-American families. The FAM provides financial assistance to help them get into homes. Nearly every one of our families there was nothing available to them from family or other connections. And so that's where we were able to step in and provide the kind of down payment and closing cost assistance that often their white counterparts received from their parents or grandparents. Buying their first home changes that trajectory completely. One of the things that we've learned is that where a person lives and whether or not they own their home impacts almost every other area of their life. Educational opportunities, career opportunities, healthcare opportunities, safety, drug addiction likelihood, incarceration likelihood, like literally every aspect of a person's life is impacted by their address. Being able to affect housing where people live and their ability to own where they are, to be able to then thrive where they live, work, play, and pray has ramifications not only for the generation that's able to get into a home, but also for their children and their children's children. The ability to have a home has cascading effects in many areas, from your ability to have better purchasing power, to educate your children, even have access to jobs. I mean, the amazing thing about the FAM is that it is identifying individual families and saying, you can live wherever you want to live. And that really is a game changer for families. We've been running for 15 years, and our hope was that when we got out of debt, from college, we would be able to buy a house. You know, I think for the most part, I was looking at, can we pay a mortgage, the monthly mortgage piece? We went through the process, trying to see if we were in a good financial place to be able to get a loan and so forth from a bank. And basically, everything was good because we had paid down all our debt. It was really just those initial closing cost down payments that we were really in need of. It was just discouraging. It's like, okay, like we finally got out of the debt. We've been in two bedroom apartments for 15 years. Like, we're gonna be here longer. We're, we're not leaving. For many families across America, purchasing your first home is something that a mother or a father, an aunt, an, an uncle can help contribute to making that move. And the reason is because 
there's been generational wealth that has accrued. And what we have found among a high percentage of African-American families is generational wealth does not exist. So those little bits of help that can really make a difference have not been able to be transmitted. The FAM is a hand up, not a hand out. They're working with people that are trying to get in their homes that are doing all the right things and we're just helping them to get over the hump so that they can become successful. It could be a matter of $10,000, $12,000, $15,000 to get over the hump of purchasing their first home. Closing costs, down payment, those kinds of costs. The fam is, is like a family member. We're like the uncle who says, hey, I've got a little bit of extra, let me help you get over the hump. That's what we're about. We're about helping our clients take that last little step, that last little nudge to get over the hump and fundamentally transform the trajectory of their life, their kids' lives, and their grandchildren's lives forever. Outside of the financial aspect, I know for my wife, a thing that was important was hopefully having a family home where memories could be built while the kids are young, right? Mm -hmm. So our daughter is 10, our son is five. If we would have had to wait another, let's say another five years to where now we got out of debt and now we need to build up for this down payment. You know, my daughter, she's only a few years away from going off from college. For us, it had the benefit of allowing them to be able to have a home that memories could be built in. If I were having a cup of coffee with a donor today and they were to ask, why should I contribute to the fam? I'd tell them, this is an organization that is changing lives. If in your heart you want to make sure that the money that you've hard earned can actually go to an organization that is not only purposeful, but extremely tactical and yielding results, then the FAM is it. And I'd highly recommend that you contribute today. If I had an opportunity to, um, to meet a donor, the first thing I would want to say is just, I would just want to express my gratitude. I would also want to probably express at an emotional level for them how their giving through the fam has brought a level of security and excitement to my heart. I would say thank you for investing in our future and in our kids' future and for making it possible for us to create a different story. Um, yeah, if you ever want to come over for tea, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I have a vision of St. Louis being a hallmark, a beacon of racial equity and community and equality. I'm not asking people to feel guilty. I'm not asking people to be full of shame. I'm asking people to join in with a vision of creating a city that we can be proud of creating a city that we can look around and go, I helped to build that. And people of every race and tribe and tongue are living together and pursuing the American dream together. That's the picture that the fam is seeking to create. I, I, I promised I wasn't taking an offering, and I'm not. Just don't worry. I guess the, the question you may have is, why, why, would I, why would I show you that video? Why would we support an organization like that? Why is that such a heartbeat for me? It's a heartbeat for me, and we support an organization like that, among many others, because we actually want to accomplish the vision that Jesus has for the body of Christ. And that vision means that that we're going to move towards the pain, not away from it. And it means that we're going to take responsibility irrespective of culpability. And it means that we're going to seek complete 
and total wholeness wherever there's been harm. And so I, I just want you to know where my heart is and where our church, church's heart is. We want to actually do this thing for real. We don't want to dance around the minefield. We want to go into the minefield and we want to clear the mines out so that we can actually truly, not just, not just as a church, but as a nation and as a world, can be one. We can be one under God in Christ. And I believe that God has given us the vision and he's given us the mission and he's given us the strategy. But I'm going to close today by telling you one more thing he gave us. When I watch the Olympians and I see them close their eyes and I see them imagine what's going to happen, I see them vision, envision what's going to happen. I know that every Olympian out there has a vision for what he or she wants to accomplish. And every single one of them has a mission, an objective. And every single one of them has a strategy, right? The one thing they don't have is they don't know how it's actually going to turn out because they all have the same vision, the same mission, basically the same strategy. But in the body of Christ, Jesus not only gives us a vision for what he wants to happen and a mission for how to make it happen and a strategy for exactly what to do in order to accomplish the vision. He also gives us the inevitable outcome of his vision. He tells us how it's going to end. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, it says this. It says, I looked, this is, this is John the Revelator, having a vision that God gave him of heaven. This is how it's going to end. This is the end of history. I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language... And they were all standing before the, th the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. In other words, what God is telling us today is, Hey, I'm letting you know the vision and the mission and the strategy, but I'm also letting you know that it's an inevitability that this is going to happen. Do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to be a part of the vision that I am going to ensure, God says, happens? Because that group of people, notice they're all still from different ethnicities. They're all from different tribes. They're all still speaking different languages, right? He didn't make them homogenous. He made them multiple. He made them diverse, but at the end of the day, they were all part of one multitude. They were all part of one family. And what God is saying to you and I today is, I'm taking you there. I'm taking you into one family. I, I, I want you to know that at the end, when I gather my people, we will be black and we will be white and we'll be Hispanic and we'll be Asian and we will be uh, native and will be every imaginable culture, tribe, tongue. We, we will be all of that. And yet we will be one family. And the way that we do that, one family church at Shaw and Tivoli and online, the way that we do that is that we, we step into the minefield. We approach the strategy that God has given to us, right? We approach the pain that others avoid. We approach that pain that others avoid. We take responsibility when we see somebody struggling, irrespective of culpability. We share the burden whether or not we share the blame. And then we seek to bring complete wholeness, complete and total wholeness wherever there is harm. God wants to invite each and every one of us into that today. And I want that for us. I want us to be one family. And I want us to be family for real. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. God, we ask that your grace and your mercy would saturate and soak every corner of our heart. We ask, Lord God, that every single part of our mind and heart would be immersed in the love that you have for us. That we would recognize that each and every one of us is completely and totally loved by you. That each and every one of us at some point in our life has been like the Samaritan 
We've all been like the Levite and we've all been like the priest. But Lord, I pray that the part of us that is like the, the man at the side of the road, the part of us that is broken, the part of us that is bleeding, the part of us that is hurting, that we would actually experience your love today and that we would know that your love is enough and that you are Jireh to us and that you are everything that we need. God, I pray that each and every one of us today would be filled with the love and the grace and the spirit of God, that we would truly love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. I want to invite you as we close to worship in a few different ways today. One of the ways that you can participate in worship is just by filling out your connection card, letting us know how we can serve you. If you're a guest or a visitor here today, I invite you to take that connection card out. Somebody just hold up a connection card so so they can see. Um, Fill out that connection card and uh, drop it into one of the baskets at the end of service. Um, You will not get spam email from us, but we do want to send you a gift. We want to send you a a gift of Right Now Media, which is a a streaming library of Bible, uh, video-based Bible studies, and invite you to have that your own subscription to that thank you um so please take a moment fill that out if you are a uh, member of one family church or this is your church home we do invite you to give um, and be a part of advancing the mission supporting all of the organizations that we support and participate in what god is doing um, throughout st louis we invite you to do that if you're a guest please don't feel any obligation to give uh, we just want you to enjoy this morning um, also i want you to know that if you need prayer this morning if maybe something that we said got close to a landmine in your own heart uh, and you're just feeling a little sensitive in one way or another and you want prayer, we've got an amazing prayer team in the side auditorium. You can go over there and pray. You can take communion. You can spend some time um, soaking in the love and the grace of Jesus. As we close today, I want to invite all of you to stand with us. Let's open our hearts. Let's open our minds. Let's open our mouths. Let's raise our voices and worship God in song. Amen.